This morning we are going to come to the Word of God. My name is Stephen. I'm the pastor. We love Jesus and love people, and we love seeing full tires. That's not a good word from Dave. That was a good word. My favorite part was batitude. I think I'm going to use that. I like that, batitude. Praise the Lord. God does recharge us, doesn't he? He fills us up. You know, church and the gospel is more about more than about just feeling good, though. It's about cosmic things, big things, eternal things, godly things. And this morning as we come to the Word of God, we're going to see what the Lord is doing, not just so that you get filled up with air, which I hope you do. So to be clear, I want everybody filled up with lots of air, not puffed up with air, you know, filled up with good air so your tires are moving right, you feel like you're moving forward. That is a good thing. That's important. And like David told us earlier, too, God is okay with our emotions. He's the author of emotions. We are not going to have always great days. It doesn't happen. And yet, the Lord is so faithful that even like we sung today, He's the one that walks us through all those experiences, all those times. Even in the fire, He's beside us. Of course, talking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In the fiery furnace that even Jesus is with them. How incredible is our God who is truly with us, even in the bad times, even in the hard times, and in the great times. And in all those things, he still continually fills us up with himself so that we can move forward. That's incredible. Today we're going to talk about how God is deliberate. How he is deliberate. Did you get my slides, Roy? Oh, disaster. That's okay, I emailed them to you. If they're there, great. Will you turn with me in your Bible, please, to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Now, Luke chapter 2, of course, is classic. We hear about it all the time this time of year. Uh, constantly it comes through to us, and we hear about it all the time. <clears throat> Excuse me, because it's the sort of classic Christmas story presentation of what happens in the birth of Jesus Christ. We're going to read it together, and we're going to think about uh, all the things that God is doing. Before we do that, just, to, just by way of kind of an aside here, um, I grew up uh, with those motivational pictures. You know those posters, those motivational posters? And they always say something you know, awesome on them and have like a picture of a jet or whatever. So one of them that I remember, I had a friend who had one that was hanging up, and the motivational thing said uh, conviction. And so that was the, like the motivational principle, if you will. And in that conviction thing, then at the bottom, it had a little caption. And the picture was of this sprawling oak tree. And it said, every tree just started off as a couple nuts that held their ground. <laughs> that was the conviction thing. <laughs> every tree started off as just a couple nuts who held their ground. I always thought that was pretty funny. I don't know why it was um, showcased quite like it was in the particular house of my friend. But it was super funny, and it was a good one. You know, as I, was, uh, as I think about that, though, have you ever noticed how trees, they can get so big, and they are giant sometimes. And sometimes in the strong Missouri winds that we get, man, they move a lot, don't they? We have two big trees in my, in my yard right behind my house that are much bigger than my house. And every time there's a big windstorm, I find branches and things on the ground. And every time there's a big windstorm, I'm just thanking God something didn't hit the house. Because if one of those trees fell over, it's much taller than my house. And yet they hold fast. Isn't that incredible? Think about how the majesty of that tree, 
the bigness of that tree, how strong it is to withhold all those storms, the housing it provides for all the animals, the shade that it provides for us, all the things that that tree does started off as a seed. That's incredible. It just started off as something so little. And to fathom how God had created the world in such a way that even that little seed would turn into something so great. It's incredible, isn't it? As we read Luke chapter 2, I want to talk to you about how God is deliberate in his planning. He's deliberate in the way he does things. He's deliberate in the way he orchestrates things. He's deliberate in the way that he is. He doesn't do things by accident. And so as we think about the story of Christ being born, it was a story that was birthed out of lots of seeds that have been planted over a long time. The story of Christ being born didn't just start with his birth. He was foretold. We see in the Bible that there's a grand plan of salvation that God was doing for a long time. And the birth of Christ was deliberate in all the things that God did to bring it about. Let's read Luke chapter 2 together. We're going to start at verse 1. And we're going to just read this little story. Please read with me. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Praise the Lord for his word. Have you seen uh, the Peanuts Christmas where Linus gives us the whole story, the more expanded story? Maybe you've gone to Calvary Church in uh, in St. Peter's that does a fantastic job of the walk through, walk to Jerusalem, or walk to Bethlehem in the nativity scene. It's really incredible. We've heard this story a lot of times, right? What are some of the elements that are being left out of this little synopsis? What are some of the elements, you good Bible scholars? Yeah, it doesn't mention the wise men coming later. What other kind of things does it not mention? It doesn't mention the shepherds receiving the news yet. It doesn't mention the news of the angel coming to Mary, who's a virgin. So it's a, it's a miracle that she's with a baby, right? This is a 190-mile trip they're taking while she's great with child. Isn't that a fun biblical phrase, by the way, great with child? Don't say that to your wife. <laughs> also, if you need one tip, one Christmas tip for you, it's very important, gentlemen. Don't buy your wife a Peloton for Christmas. It's really important, okay, unless she asks for it. She does not want an exercise bike. Just throwing that out there. Just throwing it out there. You can Google it. You'll find out. <laughs> I'm just kidding. So there's a lot of things that are missing from the story, right? The miraculous encounter from the angels, the miraculous news, even Joseph, because he's only betrothed with Mary, so they're not even married yet. And so now she's going to have a baby, and he's decided in his heart he's going to divorce her quietly away and stop the engagement because they're not married yet. And instead, an angel comes to him in his sleep and says, whoa, hold on. The Lord's done this. She's carrying the Lord's child. Now, there's not a weird sexual thing that's happened. Like the Holy Spirit didn't come and, and do something weird to Mary. God can create a baby any way he wants to. But know this. Jesus, who is forever the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, he is God, has come into Mary as any baby is in there. In other words, there's a placenta. There is an umbilical cord. He's receiving from Mary 
real things. He's actually Mary's baby. He's going to need real milk from Mary to live or he'll die. That's incredible. Thank you, Roy. Roy, you're the best. I appreciate you. Roy, really, you are such a blessing. But Jesus, he's actually going to be a real baby because he's a real baby. He's fully man and he's God, and that's a paradox we can't understand. So he is God. Here's what the Bible says. At the same time as him being an infant baby, he's upholding all things by the word of his power. That's incredible. So he's literally in Mary's womb for nine months. He's literally getting blood and oxygen from her. He's really going to be born. He's really going to have to nurse and be a little baby. There are real diapers that have to be changed. Maybe they don't smell. I don't know. It's Jesus. So <laughs> the Bible doesn't tell us that part. But as we get to the story, we hear this little synopsis. And here's one of the things that I want to just point out to us. Luke does include in the synopsis the fact that Jesus Christ is born and wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid in a manger because there's no place for them in the inn. Now, after a 190-mile journey, they come to a place where there's a manger. Now, keep in mind, we tend to think of manger as something other than what it is. So we uh, usually have in our nativity scene this great stable thing. Mangers are the actual feed trough, not the whole stable. But they're always found in stables. So we would, you know, rightly, logically think they're in some kind of stable because there's no room in the inn. Now, that's an odd detail to make sure we know about in the story. Because it's not what we expect. God himself born probably shouldn't happen in a stable. Definitely shouldn't be placed in a manger, in a feed trough. That's weird. I need to build, build a shed on my property. If you're good at sheds, give me a call. Um, here are sheds. I don't know if you've looked at any sheds. There's a kit that you can get for about 150 bucks that just gives you basically the joints. You got to go buy all the other stuff, the wood, and you got to buy everything. It just gives you the plans and all the little, you know, knickknacks to be able to put it together quickly. $150. If you want an 11 by 11 plastic shed, like you would find at Sam's Club or wherever, it's going to set you back about $2,100. Yeah, I know. Pray for Lisa. Uh, if you want a 10 by 10 wooden shed that looks pretty nice, it's going to be about four, four grand. Right now, that's if you get it as a kit and you put it together. That's not if you hire somebody to put it together. So you're talking pretty expensive. Now think with me for a moment, right? Mary and Joseph, the Bible does not tell us exactly how this transpires. We know they go to an inn so, because they're trying to find a room. And she's great with child. So imagine yourself. Your wife says to you, it's time to go to the hospital. And you're on a 190-mile journey to another place. There's no hospital. You're scrambling to find a midwife. Where do you send the midwife? Because they're not alone. There's other people with them. Because you don't travel alone on these dangerous roads. So somebody's running to find a midwife or find somebody, right? But there is no Mercy. There is no St. Luke's. There is no BJC. There's, there, that's not available. So where do you go? You go to the inn. We can at least find a private room. We can have the baby in peace. It's going to be safe. You know, that's going to be good for us. There's no room in the inn. And the very pleas that they have, you can imagine what's being said. Kick somebody out. <laughs> the baby is, she's, it's here. 
kick somebody out, and they won't do it. So this is a full place. This is a whole town. There's nowhere to go. And so what do they do? They find a shed. Now, whose shed is it? The Bible doesn't tell us. Right? Is it the inn's shed? If your wife was having a baby, even if you didn't have a lot of money and there's no hospital and there's nowhere to go, you'd probably knock on the Ritz-Carlton and be like, give me a room. I want the best room because the baby's coming now. But maybe not. Are they at the Ritz-Carlton with the nice $4,000 shed? Or did they go to the cheap budget motel and the owner put up that $150 kit himself? I don't know. But as we think about those things, God is deliberate in the details. Think about this with me for a moment. How incredible would it be to discover that you built a shed, maybe $150, maybe $4,000, maybe you spent $40,000, because you could if you want to. Whatever you spent, you built a shed, and then you found out that God himself arrived on earth in the shed you put together. How would you feel about that? Would it ever be good enough? Would it ever be right? Would you be embarrassed by how you didn't really care so much if it fell on your animals? Was it one that they were nervous? Have you ever been nervous? I put up my own siding uh, because it had come down in a storm. And uh, I don't love heights, so it was quite an opportunity. And David showed covenantal love by coming and getting on a ladder with me and helping me, my brother David. Um, but every time it's really, really windy, I'm a little nervous. Then I'm going to hear that sound of it coming down again. There's no warranty when you do it yourself. What if Jesus was in the shed, but the owner was a little bit nervous? If it blows real hard, it could fall on that baby. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us that exactly. But the reason I want you to think about it is because God was so deliberate in how he planned Think about this for a moment. The Lord himself created this place where Jesus would be born and placed in a manger, in a feed trough, a rack for fodder, a structure for feeding that's used to hold food for animals. That's where Jesus was placed. And God himself had grown through generations of trees, not just one tree, but from creation, generations of trees that he had cared for, watered, planted, kept alive, he made a tree that grew up, that was then cut down, was then cured and made into workable wood, and then somebody with some skill built that box or some box like it that the king of glory would be placed in. And God gave the person who created that box, who built that box, the skill to do it. He gave all the ingenuity of the tools to make it happen. He made the wood sturdy enough. He gave us all the principles of physics that it would work because God had a plan to send his own son to the earth. How incredible is that? God's plan for Jesus was not haphazard. He didn't just accidentally send him to Bethlehem where there was no room in the inn. He didn't forget to make reservations. Or he didn't have Joseph be one of those stubborn people who just wouldn't ask for directions and then they were a day late and so the reservations God made, they didn't work out because there were new people. He didn't do that. He wanted his son to be born in a stable. He wanted his son to be placed in a manger. Why would God do that? What, what's he trying to show us in this? Not yet. <laughs> Can you turn with me in your Bible to Exodus chapter 12? Exodus chapter 12. 
the seeds that had grown through the biblical story to show us what Jesus would do and who he is have been planted generations, millennia really, in fact, before, as God had demonstrated and shown what his plan was for the salvation of all mankind. You see, because Jesus wasn't just coming to be a good teacher. He wasn't just coming so that we would have a neat Christmas time. He wasn't just coming to put love in people's hearts. Although those things are really nice. Jesus was coming because we needed a champion. We needed a person who could defend us. We needed a person who could save us. We needed a person who could deliver us from slavery. And God's people, many, many, many generations before the Israelites, had been enslaved. And though they had actually, through their heritage, helped save the world from famine, very soon all the kingdoms of the world forgot about that. And being in a place called Egypt, the Egyptians and the Pharaoh soon found that they could be a great and capable workforce. And slavery soon came over the people. Not just slavery, but oppression. Oppression to the place where there was genocide that was happening against their people. Oppression to the place where they were being beaten. They were being maltreated. They were having all kinds of problems. It was not good. In fact, the Bible says that the cries of the people being oppressed were coming up so high to God that he could hear their cries and he knew what was happening, and so he interjected. And so he sent a baby, a baby who had been, sa who had been saved from the genocide, a baby named Moses. And that baby was placed by his mother into a basket and set along the river because she knew if she kept a hold of that baby, he would be murdered. So the baby was cast down the river. Eventually the princess, the pharaoh's daughter, the king of Egypt's daughter, found this baby, adopted the baby, even realizing that it was a little Hebrew baby, raised it as, his, as her own, and he grew in stature, although realizing he was actually a Hebrew, not, a, not an Egyptian. It's pretty obvious in lots of ways. And so he grew up, and then God called him in, an, in a miraculous event to come, and he stood before Pharaoh, and he said, let my people go. And we've seen all the DreamWorks movies and all those kind of things, haven't we? It's a great story. But it's a story of the heritage of what God had done to bring redemption from slavery. And Pharaoh, realizing what a great workforce the Hebrews were, but how he had mistreated them, had this wonderful change of heart and said, I will definitely let you go. Of course he didn't. Of course he didn't. He doesn't go from genocide to just favor. It doesn't happen. What happens in that story? Do you remember? Plagues come, and God demonstrates with power his anger at the maltreatment of his people. Not only does he do that just to demonstrate his anger, it's not just to be against the Egyptians. He's demonstrating to the world. They are the world power of that time. And God is demonstrating to the world that he is God, and he should be feared, and he should be worshipped. And there is a way to live, and it's his way. There is no other. That's what he's doing. And so he's taking through the plagues all of the deities of Egypt and challenging them. So they have a frog deity, so one of the plagues is frogs. The frog deity can't stand against God's power over the frogs. They have all these deities. One of the things they do in particular that you know is they worship Ra, who is the sun god. And so one of the plagues is a plague of darkness, where their highest god, Ra, cannot control the sun compared to actually God's power, who created it. And so the Egyptians have to come to this realization, God is God, and our gods are not. 
And then Moses comes back to Pharaoh and he says, Pharaoh, let my people go. Now Pharaoh believed himself to be a god. The people believed him to be a god. They worshipped him as a god. It was part of not just the politics, but part of the life of Egypt that Pharaoh was God's son and that he should be worshipped and deified and his orders should be followed. And so here comes Moses and he says, let God's son go. And Pharaoh in his heart says, no, I'm God. I will refuse. And so the Lord says, there'll be another plague that will come. This time I'll challenge you. You think that you're God? I'll take your son. Let's see if you have power over life and death for him. So Pharaoh has a little baby, a son, and God says, I'm going to bring the angel of death through. We're going to take every firstborn. But for the people of Israel, he's going to give them provision. Exodus chapter 12 gives us that provision. It's terrifying, isn't it? Let's read Exodus chapter 12. We're going to start at verse 21. <clears throat> then, the Moses, then Moses, who's the leader getting the people to leave, called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your, your clans, and kill the Passover lamb. That's because the angel of death, because of this sacrifice, will pass over their houses and instead only visit those houses that don't have blood upon them. Verse 22, take a bunch of hyssop, that's some leaves, kind of like uh, pine leaves from your Christmas tree, sort of. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go, shall, shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through and strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house and to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come into the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep the service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the service of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians. But he spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Now the people, they go through at this time, this Passover time. They kill the lambs. They take the blood. They put it on the doorposts. And the angel does come. When the destroyer comes, it sees the blood on the doorposts. It passes over the Israelites. And it says that the groans of the mothers could be heard all throughout the land. Could you imagine what that would sound like? I can't fathom the horror that that would be. I cannot fathom. And in his grief, Pharaoh then, having lost his own son, because he could not protect him, says to Moses, take the people. In fact, take all this gold, take whatever you want, and get out. Just go. And God redeems and saves his people. It took a lot of plagues. It took a lot of time. It was dangerous. It was violent. It was big. It was not a small thing. God saved his people from slavery. Then, as we fast forward through redemptive history, we get to, Acts, we get to Luke chapter 2. And in Luke chapter 2, God again sends a baby. A baby who will come, who will in fact be saved also from genocide. Because all the baby boys are about to be slaughtered in, in Israel. And so this baby is born... And God, in his deliberate planning, in his majestic way of showing the seeds of salvation that had started all the way back with Moses, takes his own son, 
his own baby and he puts him in a feed trough. Why would he do that? He does that because Jesus is destined to be the Passover lamb. He's destined to be the one who will die for his people. He is the plan to rescue us from slavery again. How is that possible? It's possible because blood has to be shed. It's possible because only Jesus can save us. Jesus' destiny is to save the world. I love this picture. I put it up there just for Abe. <laughs> Jesus telling all the superheroes how he saved the world. You see, Christmas time is not just the time for us to be excited about a baby who comes. It's not just the time to feel the love and the warmth of family. It's not just a time to see your own front door and the decorations thereof and feel great, like the song says. Instead, it's a time to realize that God sent his champion, his rescuer, his superhero into a fallen world that we could know peace with God and redemption from slavery. When I say that God is saving us from slavery, what am I talking about? You know, this little girl, it's all of us, isn't it? You don't have to learn how to lie. You don't have to learn how to have bad attitude. You don't have to learn that attitude principle. You don't have to let much time pass before you find out. I saw, somebody said to me the other day, uh, it took very little for me to realize that the thread that I was holding on to could break in an instant. You know, I'm holding on by a thread. And just a little, that little light of the flat tire, it's over. And unleashing this bad attitude that comes out of us in this junk. Why was God saving us? He was saving us because people have a condition. All of us have a condition. And that condition is called slavery to sin. It's not just that there is sin in the world and other people have it. The reality is that in our world where we live and in our own hearts, we are like Pharaoh. Where we have said, we will not bow the knee. And no matter what God shows us, what he does, we will be our own gods and we will decide. Here's the great truth, though. The great truth is that redemption from that, which is very expensive, it will cost blood. Instead of God coming and just taking our life or taking our children's life, instead he sent his own child, who he placed into that little manger to show us that he would be the one who would give us nourishment. He would be the one to save us. The redemption that would be required was his blood. It was expensive. It was actually taking life. Why is that? Because God said from the very beginning, if you sin, if you rebel, if you disobey, if you let bad attitude take over, if you lie, if you cheat, if you steal, if you let some kind of junk in your life come that's anything before me, or if you choose that you're more important than me, you will surely die. That was the price. And immediately our forefathers fell into it. And not just our forefathers, but we did too. Because you can see it from the little babes that we love so much, who are so innocent, but yet not. That there's something in them, that if they can have something for themselves, they will take it. It is unfathomable to me how my three-year-old could hurt my five-month-old. Because she took a toy. She can't even sit up yet. But just unfathomable. How is that possible? And we dupe ourselves to say, well, I'm really not that bad. Really, you know, other people, compared to Hitler, I'm pretty good, you know, in general. Because I stop fully at stoplights. If there's a stop sign, I don't roll it. 
three seconds. I stop. In fact, I have one of those safe auto things in my car that tracks my driving. I'm perfect record, perfect record. So I'm better than other people. <laughs> but I'm telling you right now, the attitudes of our lives betray us. They betray us. Because really what comes out of us in a moment's notice from spilled milk, from somebody else who has better something than us, from our neighbor who gets that new car, from the lustful thoughts that come out of us, from somebody whose house we go to and they have a better TV than us. And all of a sudden, that's what comes out. Why is that? It's because we're in slavery. We're enslaved by the attitude. We're enslaved by sin. We're enslaved by rebellion. We're enslaved by a desire to be our own gods. But God's redemption is deliberate. He sent for us his own son who would save us. Here's what 2 Corinthians 17.2 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on the behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he is to be made for our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him he might, we might become the righteousness of God. What is this about? Here's what it's about. God, in his deliberate plan, took the baby Jesus. He nursed at Mary's breast. He grew into manhood. He lived a perfect life. His attitude was never bad. He never let any of those things creep up. He was perfect in every way. How is that possible? He's fully man. He's fully God. God himself came and held up to the standard that God had desired for all of us. The demands that God had placed in our life, Jesus Christ fulfilled. He fulfilled all of them so perfectly, while at the same time upholding all things by the word of his power, that he chose in obedience that he would go to the cross for us. And just like the fact that God had made this manger out of constructed wood, the Lord grew, he nurtured, he helped, he encouraged, he gave skill to the very people who would betray him. Think about for a moment all of those babies that God preserved. All of those babies that God preserved because King Herod had made an edict to wipe out all the baby boys. But some of them were preserved. Some of them lived. Some of them continued. And now Jesus' own peers, who are about his age, they stood in a crowd, not realizing the great redemption of God already, and looking at our own Savior, looking at the God who had created them and saved them from death, they looked upon him with contempt in their eyes and said, crucify him. It's incredible. It's incredible. The very people that God had sustained. The Lord nurtured and grew a tree. That wood grew. It was cut down. It was fashioned into a cross. That the creator of all mankind, of all the world, of everything, would be nailed to it by people with contemption in their hearts, with contempt in their hearts, who were against God. He was hung in that tree and he died for us because he took the punishment. He who knew no sin 
became the very object of wrath itself. He became a sin to God. And all of the wrath, all of the punishment, all of the anger against sin that God has, this very same kind of anger that he displayed in all those plagues, was poured out not in a plague unto everyone, but instead unto one person, Jesus Christ. And the full wrath and anger of God was put onto him, and he really died for us. Get your mind around that, that God himself actually died for us. The good news, however, is that three days later, the Lord Jesus rose again. He came back to life. He defeated sin. He defeated death. But don't misunderstand. He really took the punishment for it. He didn't just wipe it away and just say, oh, it's over. It's fine. He didn't do that. He actually took all the punishment for sin. Why am I telling you all these things? I'm telling you these things because if you're in Jesus Christ, I need you to know that God builds deliberately. The way to come to Jesus is this. Confess your sin and say, Lord, forgive me for the rebellion in my own heart. Forgive me, God, that I chose that I would be a God above you. And instead, I submit to you. I trust you and your cross and your blood and your death and your resurrection more than I trust myself to be able to do it. I trust that when I stand before you, instead of seeing all the junk, according to your word, you will really forgive me because of what Christ did. And so we put all our eggs in one basket and say, Lord, here's the basket. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what this season is about, is to go from that face of contempt to the face of joy and release and freedom from sin and freedom from the slavery thereof, which looks like actually living a life for God, being who you were created to be. You cannot do it when you're in slavery to sin. Cannot. Instead, in Christ Jesus, we find his righteousness, his peace, and his joy in the Holy Spirit because of what he did. When Jesus came, he was placed into a manger. He died, he was placed into a tomb, he rose again, and then where did he go? He sat down at the right hand of God at the throne, but God himself, who's so big, who's so magnanimous, sent the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, to us, and who would come down and take up residence again in a very unlikely place. If you were a house, what kind of house would you be? If you were built into a house, would you really be the White House, the beautiful mansion that everybody thinks of? Would you be the palace? Would you be the castle? If God came in and dwelled into you, would one windstorm blow over your roof? You see, God came again to dwell in us, and he builds deliberately. And when he came this time, he didn't just come and get placed into a manger. He came into a people that he called to himself, who would be his own. He came into a people who looked like sheds that were broken down, unlikely. They were not well built. They were nothing. And 2 Corinthians tells us he made us into a new creation in himself. And yet we go through life thinking that God has made us into this junk shed. That if he would just come and fill us again, we'd feel something. But I'm telling you, God builds deliberately. He builds in a different way. And just like he had a plan for Christ that started from the foundation of time, that was, had seeds that walked throughout all of history, that culminated in Jesus coming and Jesus dying for us and Jesus rising again, he actually has a plan for you. And it might not be a $3 million mansion in St. Louis. I'm not saying we're all going to get money. Wouldn't that be a great Christmas gift? Super fun and fleeting and goes away. 
What I'm saying is the expectation of what God is doing for us is not the $150 little kit that we then put together. It's not something that we do. It's him who indwells us, him who makes us into a new creation, him who has a deliberate plan. And where you are now, even if you are suffering, even if you have a low tire light on in your life, God is holding you and building you and leading you and planning deliberately in your life. And it does not mean you will have a low tire light forever. It does not. It does mean he will walk with you. It does mean he will build you. It means that he will indwell you. It means that he will change you into something better than you could ever fathom for yourself. And it might not mean money. It might not even mean great health until that day he returns. But what God is doing is a spiritual blessing, changing us to look like Jesus, changing us to see that as he is, we will be. And the great hope that we have here is this. Just as God nurtured trees for generations, people for generations, with a plan to put a baby into a feeding trough and then take him to the cross and then raise him to life. Just as he was so deliberate in that plan, he's deliberate in you, building in you Christ, that you would look like him, you would serve him, you would be his ambassador, you would not look like the junky kit that's about to fall over at any moment because the house that God builds will always stand. It's his, you are his. No longer slaves to sin if you believe in Jesus. Instead now, slaves of righteousness, belonging to him and called sons and daughters to walk with him and indwelled with him because he is here with us. Take joy this Christmas knowing Jesus Christ is building you up into something much greater than you could ever build yourself. And if your tire light is on, take it to him. Take it to him. Say, Lord, my light's on. I need you and see what he does. And if he doesn't turn it off right away, count it as joy that he's walking with you through it to see what will happen on the other side. Because every plan that he has is deliberate. He's not leaving you. He's not abandoning you. He's not forgetting about you. He's not going to let you wallow in things. He's taking you out of slavery to be his representative. God is so good to us. If your light is on and you are totally low and you're out of faith, come up here after the meeting and I'm going to pray with you. We will stand together, just like Victoria said, seeing God through his people. It's important. That's what it means to be an ambassador of Christ. You're not alone, not just because God is with you. He's also put a body with you, and we're in it together. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your salvation. Thank you, Lord, that you were not above coming here to us. Lord, thank you that you didn't count yourself so high and proud that you couldn't come down. Lord, we don't deserve you because, Father, you are so high. Lord, you are so glorified. You are so wonderful. You are so big. You are so majestic in all your ways. Lord, just by your word, you uphold all things, and yet you came to us. Lord, we don't deserve you. Father, thank you that you sent your son, Jesus. Help us, Lord, to change our hearts. Father, wrench away any lasting vestiges of slavery to sin from us. Help us, Father, with eyes open, Lord, with ears ready to receive. Help us to hear and see from you what you're building in us. Help us not to be transformed by anything other than your word so that we can be real ambassadors for you and we can see you glorified. 
Lord Jesus, you are our life. You are our source. You are our salvation. You are the way that we've come out of slavery. And so today we bow the knee to you. We say, Lord Jesus, thank you. Lord, I pray a blessing on everyone here, Father, if anyone has a light on on their dashboard, whatever it may be. I pray, Lord, in their hearts you would speak to them now to show them through revelation what you are building in them. Lord, show them Jesus. Lord, bring them to yourself. Hold them close, God, I pray. Lord, in every moment, good or bad, Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus that they would know your peace, your presence, your joy, and your righteousness. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, be blessed knowing that God is truly with us. God bless you all. Have a great week. Love you guys.